0: When an emergency strikes, Preppy has you covered. Made in California, canvas and leather emergency kits packed with survival food, water, and first aid. With optional emergency satellite communication. Go to preppy.co. That's P-R-E-P-P-I dot C-O slash film From the Moan Broadcast Center, this is Film Week. Welcome, I'm Larry Mantle.
1: I am woman, hear me roll
0: It was a huge hit for singer Helen Reddy, and it's the title of a new biopic based on Reddy's life. I Am Woman stars Tilda cobham hervey as the singer and activist. Also this week, the HBO Max comedy Unpregnant, starring Haley Lou Richardson and Barbie Ferreira. We've got a romantic comedy, The Broken Hearts Gallery, and the Australian drama Boy and Sing. What would this election season be without a political documentary this week? The most recent focuses on the record number of women running during the 2018 midterms. It's titled Surge. It's Film Week right after NPR News on 89.3 KPCC and the KPCC app. Preppy wants everyone to be prepared for any situation. By bringing design to the forefront of their emergency kits, they are making earthquake prep less daunting and maybe even a little fun. Made in California, Preppy's attractive canvas and leather bags are designed to be displayed right in your living room or office. If an emergency strikes, your most essential supplies are at arm's length, not stashed somewhere deep in your closet. Though the Preppy line is quite handsome on the outside, the contents they include are incredibly comprehensive, helping you face real emergency situations with confidence. Go to Preppy Dot co. That's P-R-E-P-P-I dot C-O slash filmweek for more information. Welcome to Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. Got a lot of films to talk about this week with critics Christy Lemire of RogerEbert.com and co host of the Breakfast All Day podcast. Also with us, Christian Science Monitor film critic Peter Rayner. We begin with The Broken Hearts Gallery, which is a romantic comedy starring Geraldine uh, Viswanathan. The film was written and directed by Natalie Krinsky. Christy, what did you think of The Broken Hearts Gallery?
1: It's totally charming. It is this very traditional kind of throwback romantic comedy. Two people with very different personalities who meet cute in New York. And yeah, there's a contrived way they get together. And yeah, you know, they're going to end up together by the end of it. But it is very much the journey and not the destination that matters here. Um, Geraldine Viswanathan plays a young woman named Lucy who has this habit of holding on to things after she has broken up with various boyfriends, little trinkets and souvenirs to remember them by. And they're cluttering her apartment and her two best friends and roommates are like, you've got to get rid of this stuff. Um, She has a horrific day at work has a horrific breakup, and gets into what she thinks is a lift car driven by Dacre Montgomery, who was on Stranger Things. He's hunky, mulleted Billy on Stranger Things. And uh, they hit it off, although they're totally different people. And she ends up placing all of her little items in his boutique hotel that he's trying to get off the ground. Um, they have such lovely chemistry with each other. You may have seen Geraldine Viswanathan in Blockers. She's also the young high school journalist who breaks the story of embezzlement in Bad Education. And she's got this really classic kind of screwball comedy heroine persona to her. She's vibrant and lovely, but also vulnerable. And there's great authenticity to her um, screen presence. And then Dacre Montgomery is completely old school, charming, romantic comedy hero who um, Handsome and kind of stoic, but with a deadpan sense of humor. They've got great chemistry. This is the first film from Natalie Krinsky, writer-director Natalie Krinsky. And there's a lot of care with the supporting players chosen here as well. A great, um, inclusive and diverse cross-section of folks. I really enjoyed it.
0: The movie is the Broken Hearts Gallery and it's screening at Southern California Drive-In Theaters. Uh, The film's rated PG-13. Buoyancy, an Australian drama uh, written and directed by Rod Rothstein in his feature writing and directing debut. Peter?
2: Yeah, I thought this was pretty uh, pretty s- terrific. Uh, it's a strong movie uh, about a 14-year-old boy named uh, Chakra, played by uh, a non-actor, uh, Sarm Heng, who uh, all of the actors in this film are, are non-actors. Um, he's a, a Cambodian uh, teenager who works in his... Uh, Family rice fields, and he's sort of oppressed by a patriarchal father and an extended family. so he sneaks across the border to Bangkok uh, to uh, supposedly get work in a factory, um, but instead is sold to a, um, a fishing captain as a, a basically a, a slave uh, slave labor um, on this uh, fishing boat. Um, and uh, it, most of the movie takes place on the boat. Um, where uh, uh, everyone is uh, working twenty-two hours a day, basically just for, for a handful of rice. They can't escape. They never really uh, go to land. Uh, the weak ones are thrown overboard, and, you know, literally fed to the fishes. It's it's really just awful. And the thing is, this is all uh, true. I mean, this is a documented situation. There's apparently it says at the end of the film some two hundred thousand. Uh, men and boys who are enslaved in these um, uh, situations. So uh, it's it's very stark, the way it's filmed. It's not melodramatic. There's hardly any music uh, to heighten the uh, intensity. It's all there. Um, and uh, it's, it's quite powerful. It's sort of an, an inexorable journey into uh, the destruction of this young boy's uh, innocence. The only problem I have with the movie is that uh, there's a certain... Uh, implacability to the way the characters are portrayed particularly the boy you don't really get much of a sense of the psychology behind any of this it's just sort of a, a recounting of these horrific events but in that sense it's it's really strong
0: buoyancy the Australian film we're talking about Christy
1: well I viewed it as just you know a sort of a, a primal expression of the way he figures out how to survive you know and he, he, he does evolve and it's a slow burn and it is steadily tense and by the end it is absolutely horrifying when you see at age 14 what a violent monster he has to become in order to survive this movie reminded me a lot of monos from last year the brazilian drama monos about a group of young people in sort of their own primal wildland the way it's shot and just the the no nonsense kind of straightforwardness of what happens when these instincts take hold and and the the monster that can be inside of you you don't even know it um i totally believed his transformation and because it's told in such an understated manner it, it felt more real you know the director doesn't over dramatize this at all um, yeah, I, I did not realize that these were all non-actors, but that kind of makes sense and it adds to the authenticity of it. And uh, yeah, there, and there's a claustrophobia to it as well. The long single takes and they're in these cramped quarters on the boat and you feel like there's really nowhere to hide. So yeah, I, I can't say I enjoyed it, <laughs> but it's really good.
0: Buoyancy is unrated and able to be seen on Lemley's Virtual Cinema. Sybil, a French-Belgian co-production, the film directed by Justine Trier, uh, the film stars Virginie Ifira. What'd you think, Christy?
1: I love this movie. And yeah, Virginie Ifira gives just this tour de force performance that reminded me of like Jenna Rollins. She's got this tremendous presence about her and she evolved so much and a lot of it... It show, show We're shown it in flashbacks as to what her life was like. Um, she is a therapist, but she is trying to get away from that and trying to say goodbye to her patients to focus more on her writing. But she agrees to take one last patient, kind of like one last heist. This is her one last patient, and she is an actress played by Adele Exarchopoulos, who was so great in Blue is the Warmest Color. She is an actress who has gotten pregnant by her co-star who was married to the director, and she's just fraught. And this, this therapist sees in her an opportunity to help somebody, but also sees in her potential material. And it's a fascinating kind of blending of past and present, fact and fiction, and how the therapist increasingly um, becomes a crucial part of this actress's life as she tries to finish this film. Um Sandra Hule, who was so great, in Tony Erdmann is the director, and she's just deadpan funny in her pragmatic ways of trying to get this film finished when all is going wrong. Um, I dug it. It's, uh, it's constantly surprising. It's like a classy version of one of those 90s erotic thrillers, and it's got some Hitchcock to it.
0: Sybil is the film we're talking about. Peter?
2: Well, I wasn't quite as high on it. I enjoyed it. Uh, I think it's an enjoyable Mess. Um, the 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 premise that you have this therapist whose life is a total mess, I think is you know is is amusing. It's not terribly novel. Uh, the the flashbacks and and all of the intercuts between uh, her life now and you know nine years before and whatever, uh, I thought were uh, a little too seamless at times. I was wondering you know exactly where I was and and what was going on, um, which may be the intention, but I'm not sure that confusion is the highest aesthetic uh, pinnacle uh, for a film like this, but it, 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 you know, it is, it's very well acted. It's funny. Um, and, uh, Sandra Hulay, who plays the director uh, of the film, you know, within the film, uh, is, is hilarious. And it's, it's one of the best depictions of the making of a movie and and, and what can go insanely wrong in the making of a movie and, and aggravating, uh, that I've ever seen.
0: Sybil, the film uh, from France, uh, directed and co-written by Justine Trier. It's unrated and available on Lemley's Virtual Cinema. Unpregnant, a new HBO Max comedy, uh, which just opened uh, on HBO Max this week, stars Haley Lou Richardson and Barbie Ferreira. Rachel Lee Goldenberg is the director.
1: Christy. So this is sort of a comic version of the Eliza Hittman drama, Never Rarely, Sometimes, Always, <laughs> which wouldn't sound like yeah, how do you do a do for comedy. But, <laughs> but hear me out on this. So it is about two young women who go on a road trip for an abortion when one of them becomes pregnant. Haley Lee Richardson plays this 17-year-old who has it all together. She's going to Brown. She gets pregnant after having sex with her boyfriend, even though they've used a condom, but she lives in Missouri in a state where you cannot get an abortion if you're under 18 without parental consent. And so she and her estranged childhood best friend, played by Barbie Ferreira, who is tremendous, get in a car and they drive nearly a thousand miles to Albuquerque so that she can have an abortion. And along the way, the two of them reconcile, they become really different people. Haley Lee Richardson's character has become part of the popular clique and is a go-getter and she's super popular and involved. And Barbie Ferreira is like a latchkey kid and she's kind of a misfit and has green hair. And But still, there is this connection from their childhood that strengthens as they drive mile after mile. So it's one kind of movie. But it's also this really pointed statement about what is happening in our country right now in terms of young women and their reproductive rights and, and the way that they are being more and more infringed upon. And that sounds like it would be a clunky combination of stuff, but it is not. It manages to be light and playful, but also smart and pointed and uh, they have adventures along the way. And things don't necessarily turn out the way you expect they will. Um, They run into random people along the way who help and also don't help in their journey. And there are misadventures, but it's all going somewhere. So I really dug it, and it's it's very much worth checking out. These two young ladies have tremendous chemistry with each other.
0: And those stars are Haley Lou Richardson and Barbie Ferreira in Rachel Lee Goldenberg's film Unpregnant, written by Ted Kaplan and Jenny Hendricks, based on their novel of the same name. It's rated PG-13 and available to subscribers of HBO Max. The biopic I Am Woman, an Australian drama, Helen Reddy, the singer and activist, is portrayed by... Tilda Cobham Hervey. Peter,
2: Uh, this is a a powerful movie. I think primarily because of the lead performance. Uh, Tilda Cobham Hervey is is an Australian actress. Uh, Helen Reddy uh, is Australian. The uh, writer director of the film are Australian. Um, Danielle McDonald, who plays the the rock uh, critic uh, Lillian Roxon in this film, is also Australian. So it's it's an all Aussie uh, uh, top-liners. Um, the problem with most biopics is that, uh, you go through the usual steps of, you know, there's the heartbreak, there's the ascendancy, there's the corruption, there's the drugs, there's the breakups. Um, and, uh, you know, to, to some extent, that's true of this film as well. It sort of checks all the boxes. Uh, you can see it all coming, even if you don't know already what's coming, um, and it, it, I think, it would be a minor movie except for the lead performance. But that's a big exception because it's very hard to find a performer who can come anywhere near the the radiance or the the charisma of of the person who's being portrayed. There have been many examples of this, you know, over over time. Jessica Lange as Patsy Cline, uh, you know, Chadwick Boseman as James Brown, uh, Renee Zellweger as Judy Garland, etc. Ex- Etc. Uh, and I think this sort of you know falls somewhat in that category in terms of performance. So I don't think it's really uh, a terrific movie on on much of any level, except for the fact that it does have this great central performance, and also it does highlight uh, an important uh, you know historical moment in the women's movement with this um, "I Am Woman" anthem that that Reddy you know uh, created and championed in the '70s. Uh, And at the end of the film in 1989, she uh, sings the song again, comes out of retirement, essentially at a rally in in D.C., uh, which is also a powerful moment.
0: I Am Woman biopic on singer and activist Helen Reddy, starring Tilda Gobham Hervey. Uh, Christy, got about one minute for a quick summary of your take on the film.
1: It is a very standard biopic in a lot of ways, but the lead performance is so warm and accessible and there's a tenderness to this. Yeah, it hits a lot of the biopic cliches in ways that are a little little cringy, but um, it's interesting to watch this from the perspective of this song, having just watched Mrs. America to see what importance the song had in that movement. And you see Helen Reddy watching Phyllis Schlafly on TV. So it's a, it's a cool little slice of, uh, of American history there. And Evan Peters is great as Jeff Wald.
0: All right. I Am Woman, directed by Anju Moon, Emma Jensen, the screenwriter. The film's unrated and available on multiple on-demand platforms. Coming up, we'll hear what our critics think of The Public, starring Alec Baldwin and Emilio Estevez. The sit in Harry Belafonte hosts The Tonight Show, a documentary about Belafonte's historic week hosting The Tonight Show. We'll be back in one minute. I want to take a moment to thank our news apprentice, Sabrina Fang, who's been working with us on Film Week for months now. She's at the end of her term as a news apprentice because that is a time-limited period. But she's going to stay with us as a fill-in producer on our team, and I'm so glad we're not going to lose her because she's a great talent and a tremendous... Uh, tremendously devoted uh, employee of our AirTalk team. So, Sabrina, it's just been a delight to have you with us each and every day as a news apprentice, and we look forward to working with you as a colleague uh, on a continuing basis. We continue on Film Week with our critics Peter Rayner and Christy Lemire with the drama The Public, starring Alec Baldwin, Emilio Estevez, and Jenna Malone. Peter?
2: Uh, yeah, this is set in, uh, downtown Cincinnati at the main library. Uh, there's a real, uh, the, the library itself is, as is true of, of many libraries in the country, uh, is also a kind of a shelter for, for the homeless in a way. And, um, there's a, t- a terrible cold snap, uh, that occurs in the, early in the film where the, the homeless, uh, don't want to be sent outside. They want to stay inside the, uh, the, the library the shelter as it were and uh, this creates a kind of civil disobedience situation and which leads to a police standoff. Uh, Emilio Estevez, uh, who who wrote and directed, is is a librarian who once was homeless himself. Uh, he he says that he was essentially saved by literature, and so he's very much uh, sympathetic to to the homeless within the library and takes their side. Um, it's it's very Capra-esque, this movie, <laughs> very preachy. Uh, its heart is in the right place uh, in many ways, but um, it just outlines everything so clearly uh, in, in, you know, in red uh, marker that um, you know, it doesn't quite let you uh, discover things for yourself. Uh, but it's, it's an estimable effort in some ways. Uh, Estevez is, is not a bad director. He did a terrific film uh, in 2010 called The Way, uh, where his father Martin Sheen played, uh, you know, his son had died, and he, he walks the Camino in northern Spain. Um, it, 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 it has a terrific cast, also, although they're not used uh, to optimum effect. Uh, Alec Baldwin plays a city cop. Christian Slater is a slimeball public official. Gabriel Union is a is a, a reporter. Uh, you know, Michael K. Williams from The Wire is one of the uh, the lead homeless guys. Jeffrey Wright is the uh, is uh, the, the head of the the library, you know? So it, it's it. There's yeah,
0: great cast.
2: And always something to watch.
0: All right. The Public uh, begins streaming on the NBC Universal Peacock service Tuesday of next week. Written and directed by and co-starring Emilio Estevez, The Public is rated PG-13. The documentary The Sit-In, Harry Belafonte hosts The Tonight Show, takes us back to the historic week when Belafonte hosted. But it wasn't just him. It was a week of very special guests. Christy.
1: This is a totally fascinating slice of television history that I had never heard of. And I'm so glad that I watched this because even though it's like 50 plus years ago, it still couldn't be more relevant. So February 1968, Harry Belafonte hosts this night show for a week. He sits in for Johnny Carson. Carson realized that at this point in American history, um, he was not equipped to address the civil rights unrest that was going on on, the Vietnam War. That wasn't his personality. He was more jovial and more playful. But Harry Belafonte, who had been a guest, was also, of course, you know, a very involved civil rights activist. And so he used the opportunity to have real conversations, to have entertainment, but also to have people like Martin Luther King Jr. two months before he was assassinated, RFK, um, Aretha Franklin, Diane Carroll, Dionne Warwick, the Smothers is Petula Clark, and it was a much more, Bobby St. Marie, a much more diverse array of guests than you would ordinarily see on late night. And long before it became a standard thing to do, to talk about the politics of the day and the issues of the day, he did that. He dared to do that. He had that, that gravitas and that voice to do that. And it was like the highest rated week they had ever had. It was incredible. What's sad about it is that these are not available. All week long is not available archivally because back then they would record on the same reel over and over and over again. They would tape over it. And so the pieces we have are from other people who have recorded this week of incredible television. Um, but you have interviews with Bella himself, who is 93 and incredibly sharp and charismatic as always. Um, Whoopi Goldberg talks about how important it was culturally and how hard it has been ever since for a person of color to host a late night show like this. You have interviews with, um, Petula Clark and all kinds of other people who were, you know, were involved or who watched back then. And it's, It's fascinating because it was a segregated thing. White families would watch The Tonight Show. Black families would watch The Tonight Show, but they had never really seen themselves on TV in this capacity. So it's really, really well done and and eerily prescient as to what's going on in our world today.
0: The documentary is The Sit-In. Harry Belafonte hosts The Tonight Show, directed by Yoruba Richin, and it's streaming right now on the NBC Universal Peacock service. The Sit-In is unrated. Surge, a documentary about the record number of women running during the congressional midterm elections of 2018. Hannah R. Rosenzweig is the director along with Wendy Sachs, Peter.
2: Uh yeah, the the, the action in the film uh, is the the upshot of the 2017 women's march where a record number of women, you know, entered politics. And so here we are in the midterm elections in 2018. The film uh focuses on three congressional uh candidates, uh women Liz Watson of Indiana, Jana Sanchez of Texas, and uh most prominently Lauren Underwood um uh, of Illinois who uh the fourteenth uh, district uh who was a um, is a uh was a registered nurse who at thirty two uh, was you know the youngest black woman ever elected to Congress so spoiler alert um, and uh, uh, it it's it's a fascinating movie um, in the sense that it it really gets inside the the, the three candidacies uh, and shows you you know the workings of of what was what they were fighting for the The, the filmmakers chose three districts uh, that were all um, republican that uh, that Democrats wanted to flip from red to blue. Um, and, uh, so there's a kind of, um, uh, power to seeing where that goes, uh, similar to what we saw in some of the other documentaries, like, and she could be next or knock down the house, you know, a recent film, which focused on, um, uh, AOC. Uh, but here Lauren Underwood sort of steals the show in a sense, because uh, she's tremendously dynamic. She's up against a, uh, a self-funded, uh, millionaire uh Randy Holtgren and and the ways in which uh, they try to undercut her uh candidacy uh say she wasn't really a nurse and so forth you know there's a lot of of um you know racial and sexist things going on that that uh, Underwood you know undercuts uh, so um, it's it's a pretty pro forma documentary in many ways. Uh, the way that it's filmed uh, is nothing terribly outstanding, but but uh, the focus on these women, uh, particularly Underwood, is fascinating.
0: Surge is the documentary directed by Hannah R. Rosenzweig and Wendy Sachs. It's on the Showtime network, and Surge is unrated. The whole is a Taiwanese musical drama. Uh, Christy, tell us about this film, which actually
1: was released back in 1998. Right. So this is a film from ming Lang that came out in 1998. And I realize I keep saying the words eerily prescient on this show today, but this movie really was. (laughs) And it will resonate with you from like the very first opening words here. So it takes place during a pandemic. It takes place we hear these, these, radio or tv broadcasts talking about this virus that is spreading and that people need to be quarantined and that the government is going to cut off water to this certain areas in taiwan unless you evacuate and in the middle of that and they refer to it as the taiwan virus there's an epidemiologist who calls it the taiwan virus um and in the middle of that you have a couple of people who are still sticking out in this rundown high rise and they are neighbors. It's a man who lives on an upper floor and a woman on a bottom floor. And when a plumber comes through to make some repairs, he bangs a hole between their units and the hole keeps getting bigger and they they are forced to deal with each other. Like everyone's supposed to be isolating and there's this incredible sense of loneliness and detachment um, Simon Ming-lang will hold a shot. The opening shot is of the, the gentleman in this film who is just lying on his couch sleeping with a pack of cigarettes on the table next to him and the rain falling in the background, and he'll hold that shot for a long time just to establish the mood of how quiet and how isolated everybody is. But then in the middle of that, These wild musical numbers will bust out. The woman who lives below him has this crazy fantasy world where she's dressed in elaborate sparkly costumes and she's lip syncing and she's dancing her way through the squalid elevators and stairways and hallways with the rain pouring constantly. And then all of a sudden she has backup singers. And then in one song she has male backup dancers in tuxedos. And it's this really fascinating combination of like reality with just a fantastical notion of the ways in which we cope and um, again it's it's awfully familiar, the sense of being stuck inside and longing for human contact. And uh, if you never saw it, I had never seen it, and I'm so glad that I did. Um, it's available through Virtual Cinema, so please go and download it and support your local art house theater.
0: So, Lemley's Virtual Cinema for The whole. This uh, is the rector size cut of the film, originally released in 1998. The whole is unrated. DTF, a documentary directed by Al Bailey, who also features prominently in the film. Peter, what'd you think?
2: This is a strange movie, Larry. I'm not quite sure what I think. Uh, Al Bailey, um, his best friend, uh, the widowed airline pilot, uh, who, uh, for reasons we will surely discover, uh, is not given a name or shown at all in the film. He's, he, uh, he's trying to find love on Tinder, and he's a, he's a long-haul pilot, so he's taking flights all over the world, and uh the film takes place over eighteen months as as Bailey sort of chronicles uh his friend's uh you know lovelorn lust as it were um but it soon becomes clear that uh, that the pilot uh it, it, it's it's not just that he's lovelorn you know he has a a full you know a a sex addiction uh uh that is completely controlling his life he's also an alcoholic. Uh, so, if, if any 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 fears of flying, this will certainly make you feel a lot better to know that this guy uh, wow. is, is a long haul uh, a pilot for a major airline apparently, and uh, is uh, you know takes time off to dry out, but otherwise um, uh, he's still very much in the game. Um, the film follows him in all of his you know meanderings, uh, you know, in in you know low level. Uh, uh, sleazy areas of, of the world, and um, it becomes increasingly clear that, that uh, you know, why are these guys even friends? Uh, I suppose the point of the film is, you know, how well do you know your friends? My question was, you know, why do you want to be friends in the first place? So, so completely off, off the, the rails. It even occurred to me at some point that that maybe this whole movie is some kind of weird put-on you know, some Sasha Baron Cohen kind of thing that, that these guys really aren't who they are, but apparently they are.
0: A DTF, which must, given that he's pilot, mean down to fly. Uh, Christy, what did you think of the film?
1: <laughs> so diplomatic of you, Larry. I love the way you handled that with such disgrace. Um, yeah, I wondered that too, Peter. I wonder, is this a put-on? Is this like a Blair Witch Project kind of thing? Like, we're going to find out it was all fake, although they're making it look like it's a documentary. Um, I couldn't this guy by the end and i had a hard time even mustering any kind of interest in him or sympathy for him as somebody struggling with with clear addiction issues because he's so cruel and he's so passive-aggressive and it's not just that he's like this but he tells the filmmaker we're all like this. We all need to find ways to unwind. It's an incredibly stressful job. You have these long flights. And then when you get there, all you want to do is get hammered and find a woman to sleep with. And he makes it sound like every airline pilot, like the male ones, I guess, especially the only male ones um, are like this. Yeah. It starts out as one kind of film that becomes something totally different. And, you can't look away. There is a definite car crash element to it. Like how much worse can his behavior get? Um, but I'm not sure I learned anything. I'm not sure aside from the fear of flying part of it, but like, I'm not sure there's any insight into the nature of the immediacy of online hookups or, you know, Trying to find love again in your when you're 40 years old after being widowed, um, I'm not sure that it really even intends to have any insight beyond just being shocking and debauched. So I'm I'm very conflicted about this.
0: The film is unrated, DTF, the documentary, Al Bailey directing, and it's available to be seen on iTunes on demand. Coming up, we'll hear about uh, a major film festival which isn't. Uh, being run the same way this year, we'll say. We'll talk about how films are being introduced to the public. That coming up on Film Week here on 89.3 KPCC and the KPCC app. Coming up a little bit later this hour on Film Week, our John Horn in conversation with writer, director, producer, and novelist, Guillermo del Toro. That coming up here on Film Week on KPCC. Right now, I'm joined by multi-hyphenates uh, Christy Lemire and Peter Rayner as we talk about the week's movies. We have one more film this week, Coastal Elites, which is an HBO comedy directed by Jay Roach. Paul Rudnick wrote it, and it stars uh, Dan Levy, Sarah Paulson, Bette Midler, and Issa Ray. Christy, what do you think of Coastal Elites?
1: So this was originally intended as a theatrical stage production. This is supposed to have taken place at New York's public theater and did not because of the virus. And so instead, Jay Roach directed it from what Paul Rudnick has written. And it's five monologues from five different people who are all very liberal, um, but there are different faces within that and different kinds of stereotypes within that. And so you have Bette Midler beginning... I know, telling her a story about a run-in she has with a guy in a MAGA hat at a Starbucks. And she loves the New York Times and she's fiercely protective of her NPR tote bag. And uh, she's a very oh, she familiar, right, right. It's multi-purpose. And she is, um, but she's a very recognizable type and, and Midler's playing it in a very broad way. Um, Dan Levy is a, a gay actor who's been who hopes to get cast as a superhero. Issa Rae plays a, a woman who goes to a Black Lives Matter march and then comes back and talks about Ivanka. And they're very much preaching to the choir here. Um, there are There's a great deal of technique on display because there is more of an intimacy here than there would be if you saw these monologues on stage. They're all shot in medium close-up. There's nowhere to hide. You see every squint, every eye, ab, eyebrow lift every bit of detail on their costumes. The technique is there, but it's so ham fisted and so obvious and um, p- telling people what they want to hear in a way they want to hear it. it is the same kind of echo chamber that Twitter provides or any kind of social media provides. I don't know that they're going to change anybody's mind with this and perhaps that's not the intention anyway. Um, I was impressed by the performances, but I, nothing really goes anywhere. It's, it's all kind of safe actually.
0: The film is Coastal Elites, a series of stand-up performances on HBO. It's unrated, directed by Jay Roach. We want to talk about the Toronto International Film Festival, TIFF, um, taking place uh, during these next few days. A combination of physical screenings, drive-in screenings of films, uh, digital presentations uh, as... uh, Covid nineteen, of course, front and center in how TIFF is operating this year. Uh, Peter, share with us just a little bit of your thoughts about uh, what's on tap here.
2: Yeah, it's a sort of a curtain raiser. It it just started. It runs uh, for about a week or so, and. Uh uh, you know, as you described, it's 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 a very different situation this year. Uh, but there are a lot of highlights. I've seen uh, only one of the films, uh, a full full out. But uh, before I get to that, um, one night in Miami, uh, Regina King's directorial debut, wonderful actress. It's about um, the uh, the evening that was uh, spent shortly after the upset of the Cassius Clay Sonny Liston fight uh, with uh, then known as Cassius Clay, Malcolm X, Sam cook and Jim Brown. Gather in Miami. Uh it's it's a heralded movie. Leslie Odom uh, is a Junior from Hamilton is in it and Eli uh Garay as is, is Clay. Um there's also City Hall, which uh I've seen a, some something of. It's a four hour movie. I, I I really look forward to this movie. Uh it's Fred Wiseman's forty third film.
0: Wow. Uh,
2: he's ninety years old. Uh and uh I'm not alone in thinking he's a national treasure and our greatest looking yeah. filmmaker. It's a documentary about um uh Boston city hall and all of the the climate action the support for seniors immigrants uh, veterans homeless uh racial issues uh, it, it's all part of the uh the dynamic of this film and uh there's also David Byrne's American Utopia which is uh um, a Spike Lee documentary of the David Byrne Broadway show that was recorded uh live uh during the performance in Broadway uh, Ammonite, which is about a paleontologist, a uh, real-life uh, paleontologist, Mary Anning, played by Kate Winslet, the 19th century, and her love affair.
0: Sir Ronan in that film, too.
2: Yes, uh, Saoirse Ronan uh, uh, plays the, the other woman, and um, that's that's highly acclaimed. And there's Fireball, Visitor from Darker Worlds, which is Werner Herzog and co-director Clive Oppenheimer, who did Encounters at the End of the World. Uh, Hunting for Meteors, uh, any movie by Werner Herzog, uh, Hunting for Meteors, I'm there. Uh, it seems like he has a film out
0: every month. And, and all of them are these, you know, rather laborious because they're treks he's involved with. And I don't know how he, is, he keeps this output up.
2: I don't know. I mean, he—it's it, superhuman. Um, You're
0: too but, Werner Herzog.
2: He's—he's—he's he's, he's magisterially curious. <laughs> well said. Able to, you know, <laughs> I mean, it's not like he's going to Azusa either. You know, he's going to. No,
0: he travels the world. It's amazing.
2: Yeah. Um, <laughs> so, looking forward to that. Um, the film that I did see uh, fully, which is uh, playing uh, later on in the festival. Um, I don't know that it has distribution as yet but it certainly will is 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 a great movie and and terribly powerful and harrowing uh, it's called 76 days uh it was directed by Hao Wu and Wei Shi Shen and quote anonymous um, it's a documentary about the uh the Wuhan hospitals at the outbreak of the of the virus uh, starting in the January 23rd for approximately 76 days it takes place in four different hospitals and um, I don't know how they were able to film this in the way that they did to get the access that they did. I mean, in addition to everything else, it's, it's an incredibly well-made movie, uh, which reminded me, uh, of, above all, of, of Fred Wiseman's great documentary, A Hospital, many years ago, set in the Metropolitan Hospital in New York. But, of course, this has so much more you know, scary modern relevance to it, uh, to see exactly what's going on in there. Uh, you know, a woman who, who who who's can't see her dying father and is crying out. You know, an, an old man with dementia in the hospital who keeps wandering the halls, and uh, a nurse who wants to give the personal effects of someone who's died to to a daughter outside, and and uh, you know, just a, a a child who's born. There's there's so many human dramas in this film that are so, and and the people who. Who are involved in it—the the nurses, the doctors, the patients—it it all comes together in a way that is so frighteningly real. I have to say, if I didn't see have to see this film professionally, I might have had second thoughts just because it's 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 a difficult watch. But I also think, in many ways, it's a necessary watch, and it's something that that really drives home It's nothing else has, you know, just just how powerful this this whole situation is, and 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 the the tremendous. Uh, sacrifices uh, that are made by these healthcare workers is is really just staggering. Um, you know, Wuhan has a population of eleven million, and at the end of the film, when it seems to have let up, you know, the the entire city is is uh, there's it, a, a kind of an air alert uh, 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 that goes throughout the city. Uh, sort of not all clear, but but sort of a mournful recognition of what's happened, which is just totally. Mm.
0: 76 Days Chinese Documentary at the Toronto International Film Festival. Now, some of the TIFF screenings are available um, for digital tickets. You can buy to see the digital screenings. Visit the TIFF website, TIFF.net, and you'll see which of the films are available for screening in your home. Uh, Peter Rayner with us, Christy Lemire as well. Christy, just want to get a couple of recommendations from you uh, in a couple Minutes we have left. Uh, you have a couple of HBO uh, recommendations to make.
1: Yes, I am loving both Lovecraft Country and The Vow on HBO. They are both on Sunday nights. We've seen four episodes of Lovecraft and three of The Vow. Um, Lovecraft Country is starring Journey Smollett and Jonathan Majors. And it's this fantastic mix of sci fi. With um, you know what was going on in the South and all over the country in the 1950s in terms of race relations, each episode is a different kind of genre in, within the horror, sci-fi, mystery realm, exquisitely acted incredible costumes and they're just strange episodes that will keep you guessing. And then The Vow is about the crazy sex cult Nexium, And that's just like a guilty pleasure and each week gets creepier and creepier. Lovecraft Country and The Vow, two recommendations on HBO
0: from Christy Lemire. Christy and Peter with us this week and John Horn coming up from Hollywood the sequel, the podcast. John in conversation with Guillermo del Toro, the director writer, novelist, and producer. It's all to come Film Week here on 89.3 KPCC and the KPCC app. You're listening to Film Week on 89.3, KPECC and the KPECC app. I'm Larry Mantle. We're so glad to be joined by John Horn again on Film Week. John's podcast, Hollywood the Sequel, comes from LA's studios, and we've been sharing excerpts of John's interviews here on Film Week. With the final episode of Hollywood the Sequel out this week, we wanted to showcase One more of John's interviews, this time with writer, director, and producer Guillermo del Toro. of course, best known for Pan's Labyrinth and The Shape of Water, for which del Toro won Best Picture in 2017.
3: When we spoke, del Toro was looking at all the new and sometimes conflicting safety protocols that were being laid out in different places, like New Mexico, Toronto, and Australia.
4: The first mandate is safety, you know? Once uh, a vaccine is found, I still think the the way a said works may recuperate most of its fluidity, but I think things are going to change. Nevertheless, taking temperature, inquiring about health, inquiring about a lot of things—it's it's sort of uh, the way travel changed after nine eleven. In a way, you could still take a plane, but you have to leave yourself two hours. To board it, you know, it it, it is, it is safety protocols and health protocols. Normally, a movie set is almost like a carnival. You know, you have all the the artists and the technicians, uh, convivial and it's a very very efficient, but a very very uh, cordial, uh, casual. I mean, you can you can be two feet away from each other.
3: So if movie sets go from being a carnival and this very convivial place to something that sounds a lot like going to the grocery store where you're socially distanced and you have to be away from everybody, does it also change the kinds of movies that you can make? Because you always have, you know, half a dozen things in development. And when you're thinking about what you actually will be able to make the way you want it to make, does it change what you're developing, do you like abandon things because you say, there's no way I could pull that off?
4: So when you, when you say it'll become like a grocery store, I don't think so. But for about a, a year and a half or two, it'll be like an operating room. <laughs> you will have to observe uh, health protocols. Fortunately for us, we are in an industry that, uh, you know, is creative and so forth. But, but I, I think that uh, when I think of, uh, of where the world is at, it's a very, very tough place at a human level.
3: Do you think that changes the kinds of stories the audience wants? And specifically, you make movies that can be really scary. They can be really disturbing. It could be Pans Labyrinth, it could be, you know, elements of other movies. You make monsters, you tell scary stories, and I don't think anything is as scary right now as the coronavirus. But do you think audiences are going to want to be scared again, or are they going to want a different kind of emotional experience? How will they be changed?
4: That That is absolutely impossible to predict. But what I do know is that uh, we will always have the bandwidth for every kind of story the the, the the concern I have is the way we connect with them, the way we digest them. you know uh, Movies could be held on the theater. For months in the past and they were consumed and there would be the sort of massive movie uh, arriving. It had its place, its time, people digested it, people talked about it. Now the amount of um, stories are referred often as content and the delivery system is often the referred as a pipeline, that tells you about a flow rather than a mainstaying power, you know? And I think the, the culture consumes stories at a, an insanely fast rate, all of them. And I think part of uh, our uh, experiencing of this uh, virus, part of what is uh, challenging is this slowing down. This slowing down, I actually thought, gave me pause to think and to absorb in a different way. I was fortunate enough to be able to take the time and and systematize reading and viewing and things like that. But I actually thought, oh, my God, I haven't had a pause like this. I actually, I was transformed in a a strange way. I, I, I cannot quantify it.
3: When you think about what movies meant to you as a child, and I know we've talked about this in the past, about going to the theater as a young boy and being struck by what movies meant, you can't go to the theater now. And who is that next young boy or girl who can't get into a movie theater and can't have his or her imagination explode and become a filmmaker? Because you can't do that.
4: Well we have a, a, an immense social shift look childhood in the 1800s was different than my childhood in the 1960s you know uh, if I was in the 1890s I would be like Toby Tyler and I would like to run with the circus in, my, in the 1960s you wanted to make movies or television or in the there was the era of bodybuilding and operetta and I think that the way we communicate artistically changes with society. It has to shift. You know, um, a lot of people uh, now don't depend, depending on the generation, they don't depend on the movie theater as much as we did. Uh, The the one thing I tell you that I'm very, very, uh, very conscious now, the three things that became basic uh, in this quarantine was, uh, health food and stories you know i i have never seen so many people talking about what they watched what they are uh binging what they are doing a lot of people myself included but everybody for sanity uh, started depending on stories and i think we are in a very peculiar time in humanity where most everything, and rather than experiencing it, we hear about it. When we were in the 60s, 70s, you and I, you know, you would open a newspaper and there would be a shocking photography from uh, Vietnam or a shocking photography from uh, a disaster somewhere, and we would have a few weeks to process it, you know? Now we are processing 150 strands of storytelling in one hour on Twitter or on on any social media you, you favor. And I don't think we have the emotional bandwidth to absorb them all. But we are very, very oriented to stories.
3: When you get back to work, what are you most excited about in terms of returning to work? Is it being with other people? Is it the stories that are percolating that you want to tell
4: I tell you one thing, I have been doing this for almost 30 years and uh, I have now come to value the experience of making a movie as much as the movie. It can be a very difficult experience but then you uh, you are going through it with people that believe in you or you have to believe in yourself and I really miss my second family which is the people I've been working with since
0: the 90s. That's John Horn with writer, director, and producer Guillermo del Toro. That from the latest episode of the KPCC LA Studios podcast, Hollywood the Sequel. You can get it wherever you get your favorite podcast. Thank you so much for joining us on Film Week. I'm Larry Mantle. Have a good weekend.